Podcast episode 271. Your host, John X. Thank you for joining us. Glad to have you back once again. Denver Film Festival 43, baby. That's right. Another episode, another interview, another insanely talented person right here for your listening pleasure. I'm very, very excited. Today, I've got Noah Hutton. He is the writer and director of Lapsus. Lapsus is an awesome parallel present sci-fi movie that in many ways is a critique of labor conditions writ large. Now I know that sounds now I know that sounds like it could be a slog, but nothing could be further from the truth. This movie is great. It's really fun, it's really clever, it's really inventive, and it's got something to say. I love that. That's a movie that's right in my wheelhouse, which is why when I looked at the festival lineup, I picked this one out myself. Went to my press contact at Denver Film and I go, hey, can you hook me up with the makers of Lapsus? And he said, sure. So, a couple of emails later, we're here. As I'm prepping for the interview, I go, okay, I'm talking to the writer and director Noah Hutton. Tremendous. Let's look him up. Did not realize his parents were Timothy Hutton and Deborah Winger. And I go, wow, okay. Didn't know he was a legacy, but it's interesting. I'm not coming at this from some like crotch sniffing perspective. You know, I don't care. I picked the movie on its own merits, but it's interesting because he and I share something and I bring it up in this episode. He's in the same industry, now granted doing something completely different, as his parents. I ended up doing something very similar to my dad. So I know what it's like to kind of have to navigate when people know you for your parents before they know you for your own work. And so we have a conversation about that. And I think that's worthwhile to have because many of us end up doing what our parents do. And if your parents had some degree of success, there's elements of that that you have to reckon with. And I think that's an important part of the conversation. We also end up talking about Prop 22, which just passed in California. We also talk about WWE taking over its performers' Twitch and Cameo accounts, even though they're independent contractors. It's interesting what movies will help you think about and help you contextualize in ways that you hadn't before. We also talk about blue-collar versus white-collar sci-fi. Not a commentary on either one. Both have value, but what's the difference between them, and how does that lens shift our understanding of the story? Now, normally, I don't do this big an exposition dump in the intro. But as you can probably tell, I was energized by this conversation. Noah is incredibly sharp, very smart, very insightful, funny dude, too. We have a few laughs in this. And just an overall great dude making terrific art. I highly encourage you to check out Lapsus. He says it's due for a release in early 2021. So that's fantastic. Sadly, Denver Film Fest is over. But go to the companion blog piece. Go to the show notes and stay up with all of Noah's work there. That's at johnofalltrades.us, J-O-N of alltrades.us, or like I said in the show notes, iTunes, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your pods. As long as you're there, please leave us a rating. Please leave us a review. Hit that subscribe button. Brand new episodes will come directly to you. Now then, we all have things we need to do, so let's get to this week's episode. Episode 271 of the John of All Trades podcast features Noah Hutton the writer and director of the film Lapsus, which I happen to catch as part of Denver Film Festival 43, and his episode starts right now. (laughs) 
It's um, it's probably around twenty by at this point, twenty something. <laughs> and how many interviews like this does that make now? Oh, uh, <laughs> uh, you listen. Each one, each one is is a fresh unicorn, and <laughs> I don't, they don't combine at all in my mind. Okay, well, good. I'm glad to hear it. Uh, when you do festivals, I mean, I know it's all virtual this year. Um, do you prefer to kind of like, do you like to attend and kind of get audience reaction or are you more sort of like, eh, we'll see how it goes. What's, what's your preferred fest going experience? Not in a pandemic. Yeah. I've, I come from doing documentaries. It's sort of, it's a somewhat different experience. Um, the, the question and answer sessions end up being much more about, um, the issue of the film, the, the sure. sort of like, which, which honestly, this one, you know, many of the conversations are also about that too, but more so in documentary. And I guess I, I enjoy that. Um, I enjoy meeting people and everything, but there's something different with, um, with the festival experience so far that I've had with, with fiction films, starting with a short film I made that, that basically didn't get into any festival except for one in New York, New York Shorts Fest. And it was, it was supposed to be a comedy. It was a comedy. Just hearing the audience laugh, like being in a room when, when it got its first laugh was a kind of incredible. I was thinking of not trying to do fiction films anymore after that because I had kind of a tough experience getting into festivals and whatever, but, but, but getting a, getting a laugh in a room of people was completely cathartic and made me want to continue, uh, being a filmmaker and try to make this film, which definitely tries to have some comedy elements in it too. And that, and that's what I miss the most, honestly. When, so yeah. when you ask about festivals, it's like, the laughing together in a room of people of strangers is, is unique, certainly to that experience yeah. being in theaters in general, but festivals are that first hit of it. So um, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm bummed not to, not to have gotten any of that with this film. Yeah. I, it's gotta be rough because I, I mean, I'll tell you, here's something I'm sure you get all the time in terms of festival talk, but one of my favorite movie going experiences of all time, I was a teenager. I was back for my first year of college and I saw American Pie 2 in theaters, which by no stretch of the imagination, a great film. But that audience was ready to laugh. And I still think back fondly on being in that room with those people who were ready to like have a great time. And I think when you get festival goers, those are like film super fans. So I totally feel you on that. Totally. That, and that, that good faith approach to a film, like I'm here to, to be entertained and to enjoy this, um, does happen most at festivals. And that's a, it's a bummer not to get that, you know, your first time out with a film that I think people would enjoy in the theater. I very much agree. So this is Noah Hutton, director of Lapsus and a film I just finished and really thoroughly enjoyed. And very, I mean, I'm sure you get this all the time, but very pertinent to our times, especially gig economy. We just came off uh, an election. This is being recorded two days after the November 3rd election. I first want to say congrats on a great film because I, I found myself in this universe and I recognized it as sort of like a present, but like a parallel present. Um, is that sort of key to the vibe that you were seeking? Absolutely. That's the term we use, parallel present. Oh, really? And yeah. So yeah, that you independently came to that, which I love. Um, <laughs> well, that's what that, that was our, in our synopsis and everything. We say in a parallel present comma, and then the synopsis happens. And so yes, that's, the, that's important to me because I think too much sci-fi puts things, sci-fi that I think is genuinely earnestly trying to comment on our times today, politically, socially, otherwise, sure. puts, puts their story uh, very much in the future where it can feel a little out of reach. So it's like, this is a society I don't even recognize. And so, yeah, we were trying to create a world that felt very present, but had 
was in the sci-fi space and did invent, a, you know, did build a new world at the same time as it, you know, commented on our world. Well, one thing I kind of liked about it was so much sci-fi is like this dystopian, you know, like very gray color palette, very industrial looking. And this takes place almost exclusively like in nature. And so for a sci-fi film to exist out in the green, it, it felt a lot of sci-fi films can feel very claustrophobic, especially when you're feeling, you know, the, the constraints of a large corporation coming in on you and things like that. But this, you're kind of out in nature. So you do the claustrophobia a little bit differently. And I, I mm, appreciated yeah. that as a, a, as a visual palette. I'm with you on that. And I think, you know, certainly the, there's been some recent films that have done that. Well, I don't think we've, that, that's something I was definitely influenced by like annihilation recently. Oh, sure. Um, yeah. And, and there is a, building building a some sense of doom or mystery or, or dread doing it real in nature is a dread yeah for sure is what that film does great yeah yeah absolutely it reminds me of one of my favorite little um indie thrillers that came out a couple of years ago called green room mm, yeah totally. which is such a cool movie and like the the thing i reckon i loved about green room was and I realized as I get older, I'm appreciating things like set design a lot more and production design. Whereas when I was younger, I wasn't paying attention to that that much. I was all about the words and the plot and how propulsive is it and things like that. But now it's the details. It's the world building details. And, you know, I think about someone like Tarantino, who's always using like in Pulp Fiction, it takes place in the 90s, but all the cars look like they're from the 1970s. Mm. And and you go back and watch that and you go, this is really strange. And so this sci-fi movie about quantum cabling starts with this very lo-fi TV, you know, being plugged in with like the RCA cables and stuff. And I'm like, wait, what is happening here? This is this is kind of a marriage of low, lo-fi and hi-fi, which I thought was neat. What Can you describe kind of the choices that went into some of the aesthetic and making this alternate present? Yeah, that was a the production design was enormous for us in this film working with an ultra low indie budget and trying to squeeze everything we could from that budget <laughs> to build a, a world that we had a pretty clear sense of we, we wanted that retro futuristic aesthetic the elements that we were lucky to get were like the robots which were donated by the university of pennsylvania uh, they made it a student project they sent students nice. from the robotic lab with those robots and we got we embellished on top of them but you know, the, anyway, the um, choices to make it kind of retrofuturistic do, as you say, run against the high tech theme of here's a world in which quantum computing has taken over workers or, you know, thrust into this new sector of the gig economy laying cable. But I don't know. I think I think if I were to think about why the aesthetic decisions were made the, the way they were, it was because maybe there's a comment going on that with every new tech um, bubble that comes every new boom the film is maybe saying that the, the actual working conditions of the people don't change that much so oh, sure people are people are very much dealing with the same minimum wages they were dealing with 25 years ago in many states and so that um that actually i think became reflected in the aesthetics of the film we don't want this to feel like this is in the future and out of reach this is actually talking about things that haven't changed much since the 90s truly right so it's interesting. My very first job I ever had, I worked in the bindery of a printing company and I worked four days a week, 10 hours a day. Tough work had, uh, paper cuts all over my hands because I'm picking up big reams of paper and feeding these pockets and the machine generally just doesn't stop. And so you're kind of there. And I was thinking after watching this movie, that's not all that dissimilar from sometimes you'll see footage from inside like an Amazon warehouse. 
and you know people are standing there and you know it like the the machine never ever stops and so i think you're right in that while the aesthetic may be different the underlying problems kind of stay the same that's an interesting commentary i haven't thought of it that way yeah i don't and and the aesthetics are they give you a feeling in the film more than saying that directly but it's it's just another element to play with, you know, in, in, sure. in the way you're telling the story. Well, and the thing that kills me is if you've ever worked in any corporate office ever, Tina Fey has a really funny story in her book. And I think it's in her book or maybe I read an interview with her. But she was doing like writing skits for companies and she had to put these like cutie poo little like funny spins on, hey, you're losing your dental insurance. And so like in your film, you know, it's like, now's not time for a rest. It's this really sunshiny app and like very cutesy poo. And you're going, Oh, shut up. Like, <laughs> like, you know, you're, you're basically pushing us to work ourselves to death, but you're doing it through this really, uh, syrupy saccharine cartoon character, um, yeah. which was, was a super funny, uh, commentary on the tone deafness of corporations. For sure. There, there's a gamification certainly that's going on all across labor where it's it's sort of to pick up the strain of like rugged american individualism like you are an island you get to buy all your gear yourself isn't that amazing you know i had a job <laughs> lucky you school. yeah yeah i had a job i had this classic job i think a lot of people know about or did themselves selling kitchen knives in high school oh geez and yeah and so you you know even back then i had to buy my set of knives i remember it was funny <laughs> i was like what i have to i got this job okay i gotta buy the gear now to do the job and so that, so we're thinking about that. We're all, and the Amazon example, of course, is very, very relevant. There are, there are wristbands that, that Amazon factory workers wear that sort of chime when they're falling behind, keep track of their every movement. We were thinking about that. But the, again, the aesthetics of that, it's like, it's like if it's made into a game, you feel like you are playing the video game of your life, <laughs> yeah. which both gives you a sense of freedom and exhilaration while stripping you of all protections and rights at the same time. So. It's funny you bring that up um, because I, I was alerted to this uh, from a website called Defector that I really like. It's the folks who used to run Deadspin. They now have this employee-launched website. Deadspin was bought by, I want to say, private equity ghouls, and they just kind of gutted everything that was great about the site. Um, so they've started this new site, and it's fantastic. It's exactly the vibe that I want, but there was an article on there about Proposition 22 in California. And I'm assuming that you are pretty familiar with that. Yeah. I'm trying to think how I want to phrase this question, but how much uh, is is the film commenting on something like that, and and how how much does that inform your work directly um, when you have ballot measures funded by the likes of Uber and DoorDash and Lyft, trying to make sure that employees continue to be classified as independent contractors and not full employees? Yeah, it it, it it's directly influential. If nothing more, I think the, the language that's, that they use to talk about, like companies like Uber and Lyft spend so much money crafting the language that they want the public discourse hmm. to take about, about these issues. So for example, in Prop 22 in California, it became an issue of avoiding regulation, the word regulation, as opposed to full people who are working basically full time as, as independent contractors for these companies fighting for their own protections or healthcare insurance. And so, Instead of it's, it's like fighting against or fighting for. So I, th those forces, I just wanted to articulate in a story in a world where you can clearly see what the working people are fighting for. <laughs> They're trying to do their job and they don't have certain things. And it's very interesting in these, in, in the prop two case, how 
in, we get the sense, oh, yeah, it's great. We have this marketplace in the gig economy. They're all these company. These companies are fighting, are competing against each other. Uber, Lyft, they make each other better. If one company were to give healthcare, then the other one would have to. So the market's going to get us there. But in in the case of Proud Twenty Two, what what happened so successfully, tragically this week, is that the result of two hundred million, I think, in in um, lobbying that, that these companies collectively spent. They got together and worked on this together. Costliest ballot it, measure in California history, from what I read. Yeah, there you go. And and now they have to. It can only be overturned by seven out of eight. You know, people on the uh, on that state committee, like like turning it over. It's basically like amendment proof. So. Anyway, the the point is, I think yeah, the the competition goes away within the marketplace. The the moment they need to band together to fight, you know, against basic protections for their workers, so they all of a sudden became a proto monopoly overnight to work on prop on Prop Twenty Two. And I think in the in our film, we make that point a couple times about you know, there's all these different companies in this marketplace of quantum cabling, and you see our main our hero Ray go and choose which company he's going to work, like go to this quantum jobs fair kind of. Right. But in reality, like they they would, it is a monopoly, and they would use their monopoly power in a second to crush, you know, the working conditions. Right. It. Uh, so I'm a big professional wrestling fan, and yes. one of my, I, I mean, I've I've grown up loving that, but I, it's hard because that company makes it very difficult to love them. Uh, in a lot of ways, particularly with the way they treat their performers. And just recently, I don't know if you've seen this, but WWE took over its performers' cameo and Twitch accounts, even if they were using like their real names. They said, no, we're, we're going to take this. We control it now. We'll give you a cut, but it comes out of your downside guarantee. And you go, okay, first of all, you are classified as independent contractors and I know as someone who is, is an independent contractor, I have my own company, so I subcontract through places. If someone tried to do that to me outside of the demands of my work, I mean, that, that's a grounds for legal action. And so you see this happening again and again and again, even in places where you don't expect. It's bizarre. Yeah. Every, you're right. And, and so many people write about lapsus as a critique of the gig economy. And that's totally fair. I actually was not thinking specifically about the gig economy when I wrote the film. I was just thinking about labor writ large. Cause like you, I've done my last 10 years of being like a working person have been all independent contract work. Yeah. I, I like do film and video work. I work as an editor or whatever, and it's all freelance, you know? So I was just thinking about that and that that's happening. Every like big company is finding new creative ways to make more of their labor force independent contractors. It's both like, oh, wow, I get to own a business. Oh, cool. Okay, I get to make all these decisions. I get to subcontract. Cool. And then you, you over time, you start to see the other side of that. It, you you certainly do. And it's not for everyone because it, it it's not without its challenges 100%. I, it works well for me. I mean, and just to, I I don't know, play both sides here a little bit. I didn't fit well inside organizations because those certainly come with their own challenges as well. But I think your point about labor writ large is really well taken because as you're trying to carve out your path, you want to have some agency in terms of being able to control your own destiny. And I think independent contracting does provide some of that. Some of it is largely a mirage, though, because you end up beholden to a lot of different types of companies as opposed to just one. Absolutely. You you can be a... um full-time employee at a company and there's there's something simple about that in the sense that you have one client in a way <laughs> right yeah you know you, you know you know what that client wants and you know how to do your job well it's hard it's harder to be 
you know, and much, many of my freelance years, it's been like, oh, I have that one main client or like the anchor tenant, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. They were like keeping you afloat. And I, you know, but, but man, now I got to like in a year where I'm piecing it together more, I got to think of like what five or six different jobs want and they're not all the same. <laughs> and um, that, that's hard too, but you know, you're right. Listen, I, I, it's, there is great flexibility in, in working as an independent contractor. There's no question. I think I, I would, on the political spectrum, I would probably argue then that it w- the ideal situation would be people given the flex- flexibility to be independent contractors, but a stronger social safety net so that you don't have to buy into right. very expensive healthcare that, you know, there's single payer and that things are run up, you know, hopefully efficiently, but <laughs> That, that's, you know, that's, that's just what, that's the ideal world, you know, I'd like to see. Right. Well, now you're talking crazy, right? Of course. <laughs> I know that's insane. That's radical. Yeah. That's, uh, you know, that's not proven effective in places like Norway and Sweden. Not at all. Um, but, uh, you know, here that's, uh, that's considered sort of radical ideology where it's like some of this, if we all pay in together, provides more freedom. And that feels paradoxical to sort of American individualism, which I think is yes, interesting. Yes. Deep philosophical conflict with the DNA of the country, for sure. Right. Um, one thing I also wanted to talk about was the nature of, of kind of control and technology here. Because uh, at the very beginning, there's a scene where it, it has to do with Ray and his parking. And I don't think I'm spoiling anything by giving away this scene, but he, he ends up talking to a parking enforcement officer and says, you know, according to the calendar, it says this. And she said, well, are you on quantum? Like, and he says, no. And she goes, well, then you're not up to date on all this. It reminded me of a scene at the very beginning of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, where it is, <laughs> you, I, I just saw you nod. Is this kind of a direct kind of uh, play off of that? Absolutely. Is um, it really? I, I, Huge fan of, of the opening of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Yeah, um, where like someone comes over Earth's PA. Yes, and, and says there's a, a, a bulldozer. <laughs> yeah, well, the Earth's PA, but but before, you know, he wakes up and there's a bulldozer in his front yard, right. and like the whole world has changed, you know, uh, overnight. So that absolutely, yeah. But continue. Um, so yeah, it, it's basically like you had all these opportunities. There was all these public meetings. You you could have protested that the demolition of Earth at all these opportunities. And you go, I'm sorry, what? Like, who was doing this and where? We had no knowledge of this whatsoever. And it kind of, like, the commentary to me is that technology can often be classist. Does that resonate with you? Yes, 100%. And we, you know, so so you picked up on the parallel present uh, description earlier. I think the other way we've talked about this film, and that was important to me going in, was it, this is blue-collar sci-fi. Right. And yeah. I think a lot of sci-fi is white collar sci-fi. <laughs> and something else the film's getting compared to a lot is Black Mirror. And I would I would argue most of not Black Mirror is white collar sci-fi in that it's it it isn't really interested in class at all. It's sort of about the people who make the technology benefit from it directly or screw people over directly. Right. And um you know, there's sort of an infatuation with with the sk- the doom of new technology without actually exploring the real life class ramifications of it. So I, that's like central to what I'm interested in with sci-fi. And I think a lot of great sci-fi has done that too. It's, sure. um, it's, that's the kind of commentary I'm interested in. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Um, you picture something like even, I mean, let's, let's go to the Holy Grail of sci-fi, right? Let's go to star Wars and you look at that. And I mean, it's, there's, there's a class struggle element to that, but so much of the visual texture of, of star Wars is, 
you know, these impossibly gorgeous and hard to imagine locations. To, to your point, I've never thought of it as blue collar versus white collar sci-fi, but sci-fi by its nature, because we're talking about the future, even something like Futurama, um, has this sort of visual texture that, that goes, Oh, the future is like fantastic and, and very, you know, like, um, impossible to imagine or the Jetsons. Yes. Um, Whereas, you know, this, it's like, no, you got a bunch of people dragging a cart of cable <laughs> through the woods. <laughs> yeah. And so. Well, yeah, I mean, so, I mean, like, for take your Star Wars example. Like, I was always kind of interested in the people aboard these ships. You know, you see them in the background. You see the, the working people on, <laughs> on, on the ships, right, or on the planets. It's like they're there. They're in the aircraft hangar when Han Solo is, like, getting in his, you know, Millennium Falcon, right? They're about, but. But so, like, the, a, cla- a Star Wars interested in class would would be interested in like what those conditions are like for those people. Sure, that's fine. But you know, it's so, like Star Wars is about like this ruling family uh, or like the royal family of this universe. Right, right, right. But you know, so that so it's not. Listen, you can. It's Star Wars is fantastic. I love it. It's it's a, like it's not it's not that it can't be entertaining unless it focuses on class issues. It's just a different. It's just a lens shift. In what stories you're telling, that's all. Well, it reminds and, it reminds me of dialogue in the movie Clerks, where you know they're talking about how the the second Death Star gets blown up, and there was probably independent contractors on there. <laughs> that's what I forgot about that. That's it. That's it. And so, yeah. like, that's thinking about Star Wars in a much different way, um, and right. and kind of speaks to the to the way that you're looking at it. Like, hey, what's the average kind of um, spaceship mechanic make what's his life like totally yeah, yeah. <laughs> on on tatooine or wherever yeah 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 those are listen they, i know they're struggling to figure out like new storylines for star wars <laughs> here it is this is this is it you know like let's talk about independent contracting on tatooine <laughs> right mike rowe shows up to find out what the average mechanic's uh day is like doing dirty jobs tatooine so, <laughs> so uh one thing i wanted to ask you about too is in this movie a lot of the focus is on Ray, played by Dean Imperial, and he is magnetic in it. Um, it like, I wanted to watch him just right from the word go because I, I read a number of the reviews um, as, I, as I was watching this and as I completed it. And they talk, and I think even one of the characters comments on this, how he has kind of a 70s mobster vibe. Yeah, um, totally. Where did you find Dean and what went into kind of his, I guess... Well, I suppose I could guess this as I'm asking the question, but his his kind of retro future vibe. He's been a friend of mine in New York for many years, and I actually worked as the DP on a pilot that he wrote and directed. And he hasn't acted ever since he first moved to New York. He was in one short film that I that's that I can't even find; it doesn't even exist. So I actually <laughs> never I never saw him act on camera before casting him in the film, and that was that was a bit of a risk, but somehow. By just being his friend, by knowing him, he's part of this Naked Angels playwrights group in New York, and I'd seen him do a reading one, so that was close, you know. Mm-hmm, yeah. Um, that he was more—he was more like a muse for me in even writing the script. I wrote the part for him. I didn't write the part and then cast him, you know, after the fact. It, this was writing a character for Dean to play, and Dean is very much this character. You know, it's, uh, <laughs> okay. it's not so fun. It's not like if you know we've done a few interviews now for the film together and. If you've seen any of him online, his, 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 even down the wardrobe, it's very much Ray. <laughs> wow. And so, you know, it's a, but, but that being said, it's not, you know, it's like there are many actors who play a version of close to themselves on screen. However, it does take a lot of skill to bring yourself to the story of the film because this is not Dean's story. This is a fictional character. So he did incredible work and 
he's a great actor. I hope that he continues. Yeah. Um, I hope people see him in this and cast him because he almost has like a James Gamalfini type energy. Totally. And, and I, I just, I feel like people should, should cast him. <laughs> he's, he's got like a, a low key kind of no bullshit, very like simmering intensity about him, which is really, and like this sort of, um, dry sensibility which i really enjoyed as as sort of a, a grounding point because when you get into a sci-fi world you kind of need an anchor point and given that he is trying to catch up he's a good audience surrogate for the rest of us trying to understand this world because he becomes the way or the lens through which we kind of understand the lay of the land here in every sense that that means that that was crucial because i if left to my own devices if i had like Wrote, written a character, a central character who is more like me. I'm, I'm the one who's interested in technology and I've, I've been making a, another, uh, a documentary that's premiering at Doc NYC next week about neuroscience. And oh, wow. that's very much, I would be like the nerd, the nerd in, in figuring out the world, but I needed a, I needed to write a character that, you know, like Ray, because the quantum world is overwhelming for anyone to think about. And our, our audience needs to have someone who they can feel like is, is a reliable, you know, not going to be ahead of them in understanding quantum. <laughs> right. And I think that's, that's, that I, I get frustrated with sci-fi when it's like that, when I feel like the people are having these revelations that I'm not let in on as the audience. I'm just expected to kind of be like, Oh my God, it's amazing to be awestruck while other people are figuring it out. So I wanted to, I wanted to give the audience someone who's, figuring out with them in real time. Yeah, I, I, I think that's important. So, I, and you know, I'm not opposed to being cast adrift. I, throw me in the deep end. Like, I'll, I will figure it out. I'm confident in myself in that. But having an audi audience surrogate, it makes you identify with the character even that much deeper, which right. I, I, I think was, was really fun, especially when he's kind of got an eccentric aesthetic about him. Um, and, and you're going, Hey, this is, uh, this is my kind of guy. I, I think I'd, <laughs> I'd like to hang out with him. He's a great guy. He's it, Dean's fantastic, and uh, Madeline Wise, uh, who, who plays Anna, right. was also. I wrote that role for her. I knew her beforehand, and I was I was curious too. And like, they're such different people, yeah. Uh, and so bringing them together, like these two forces meeting, and and like, how would they even react to each other? I was interested in that. Yeah, absolutely. What would you say for the people who've worked with you? Um, what would they say your style is as a director? Um, I, I know there, there are folks out there who are very meticulous. There are folks out there who are kind of zen about it, kind of let it flow. What do you think people would say about you as your directing style, like as you're working kind of on set and constructing this? I, I, I think that I, um, I'm pretty hands off with actors. I, I, um, I definitely go in and give notes and things, but I, I really let them go. I let them, I let them take the first couple takes themselves and just see what they're bringing. Sure. I don't do much rehearsal and I don't, I don't really, um, I kind of, I kind of want to see what people show up with and then I, I shape it gently, I would say. You know, I'm, I'm not a perfectionist, I don't think. Although I will say when you're working on, you know, a, a low budget, you don't really have time to be a perfectionist, <laughs> even if you are. You don't, you don't, that's a luxury that maybe you get later in your career. I don't know where you can do like 10 takes. I, I could barely have time for like five takes and feel the pressure of needing <laughs> to move on. So, um, you know, it's just interesting how that works too. I think, I think maybe people evolve into who they really are after they, after they grind out their first feature. But I will, I will say that this, something we did do on this film, which is very important to me is we, we have a, a handbook of, it's like a, a filmmaking handbook that we adapted from 
um, a marine science lab that I've done a documentary about. And they had a scientific handbook for how they run their lab. And it's a queer feminist anti-colonial lab. Oh. And um, I took that, uh, th- their handbook and adapted it for filmmaking. And so we had a very clear and, and robust code of conduct and ethics on set that was meant to, to protect people against, you know, any kind of harassment or any kind of uh, un- unseemly power dynamics, but also, you know, ensured that people would be paid at least minimum wage for labor, which is a problem on independent filmmaking. Wow. Um, people get asked to do like hundred dollar a day. And I think that's unfortunate. You know, I don't think you should make a movie unless you can pay people properly to work on it for you, who will get no glory from the movie coming out later. Right. Um, the director gets all the glory, maybe some of the stars. And so we had, the, so we had this kind of code of conduct that ensured that, you know, if you're sick, tired, um, heartbroken, you go home, you don't work. And that was enforced and made clear. Everyone had to read it and as part of their onboarding onto the project. And we had meetings about it. So I think if people were, if you were to ask people on the crew, like, well, I'm like the director, I'd hope that that would, I think it would come up because it was, it was weird. I think, I don't think people would like jump around from film to film, get that as part right. of the process. And so this, I think this was a unique thing that I hope people stayed with people on the crew. That's really cool. And I mean, Piecing, I think of uh, an independent filmmaker I, I know here in Denver who is finishing up a feature that she's working on. She had to put off production for a long time because she ran out of money. And she said, I'm not doing this thing without paying these people. There you go. And a lot of them were her friends. And they said, no, we'll, we'll keep doing this. She goes, no, that's not right. I, and yeah. I can't pay you a lot, but you deserve to be paid for your labor. And yeah. so it's interesting that kind of the overtones of the film are reflected in the way that you structure your own set. Um, so, I mean, to that end, you're walking the walk. It would have been so hypocritical to make a film espousing, you know, how people are <laughs> working, people are being taken advantage of <laughs> right. and then go and go, go and get my friends to help me make that film for free, which again, I'm sure they would have done. Many people are happy to jump in and help you in, in real time, just like helping you move or something. They'll come help <laughs> right. you make your movie. But the problem is that it gives you as the writer director such a rocket boost that they might have second thoughts about that later when they see like now you have all this money and, and you, you never paid them to work on your film. So yeah. retroactively that can, that can, I think burn people a little bit, but even regardless of that, it doesn't even matter. You just have to have a strong ethic about it in real time. And you have to insist like your friend did in Denver, like you, you, you have to insist in real time if you want to stand for it. And we certainly, I certainly stand for it in the films I want to make. So it was a no brainer for me, not just because of this film, you know, needed it for the optics or something, but actually it's like, I wouldn't want to make films if it wasn't done that way. Well, and I think, I mean, I, this is my fifth Denver film festival now. So I've, I've spoken to a lot of filmmakers and it's funny. It's almost always directors or producers or actors. I did one film. It was a documentary about, uh, Foley artists called the actors of sound. And so a lot of their work is kind of unsung behind the scenes. And these are tradespeople. You know, they're working on a lot of different types of films. And so it's like, oh, yeah, uh, I, I spoke to one guy and he said, yeah, no, I did uh, a lot of the Foley on Little Miss Sunshine. And wow. and I thought, OK, that's really cool. But no one knows that, you know, like right. you, you, you can't. Everyone kind of knows that Steve Carell and Greg Kinnear and Tony Collette. You don't know that there are hundreds of people working on these films. And so like, this is their job. And that, yes. that's amazing to me. Yes, absolutely. I mean, the people I think of in this film, just the people who built our, our metal cubes. Sure. Um, 
we only had enough money in our budget for two sides of steel at every, at any one moment. So <laughs> it was a, it was a wood frame. And then we could, we had these like steel panels and we had to only cover two sides. And then when we needed to like move the camera around, we would twist the cube. <laughs> <laughs> and so anyway, but that, that aside, like the, they aged that metal, they worked on it for days leading up to our, the first moment we needed a totally like separate project going on in the woods. And they didn't really have much to do with the film. You know, I saw them around, they were building some other set pieces, but this is like the art department folks, right? They don't get the glory of even like being on set when the scenes are being shot many times because they're working ahead and they're building the next two or three sets. So they lose some of the like camaraderie, I think, because they're in their own craftsman world. And and that's tough labor. And often the stuff they build in our case, we use the cube on every promo still for the film. It's like so important for us. And these people should be known for having, you know, worked on it. So that's a shout out to Alex Lindy, our, our production designer. That's awesome. Um, and always good to like give a shout where you can. And it, it's one of those things where if, if you are giving, if you, you know, as the leader, people will ask for recommendations all the time. And yes. so like that's some of the power that you wield as director. And so using that well is, is vitally important. I'm with you for sure. Yeah. That, I mean, people, people mostly, I think jump from project. The project on recommendations, personal recommendations. That's true in my business as, as true as it is in any other, you know, like people go, no, this is a good guy to work with. He works hard, high quality product, shows up on time, team player, that kind of thing. Like all those intangibles really, really matter. Yep. Totally. So, uh, I want to shift gears a little bit because you and I share something, um, that is not true of everyone. When I was coming out of college, I tried like hell not to do what my dad did because he casts kind of a long shadow in his industry. Those are where my connections are. That's where my, you know, that that's, that's where I had a foot in the door. So you have a couple of very famous parents. You find yourself in a similar industry. And I'm curious, how has it been kind of carving your own niche in that regard? Because your folks do cast a shadow um, when I'm sure when people find out who your parents are, how do you handle that? How do you deal with that? Uh, and, and what's the experience been like? And did you fight against that at any point? Uh, good questions. I, I would say that I, I, I very much grew up in around the industry. I, I didn't even go to real school until uh, third grade. And, you know, very much the most active parts of my parents' careers were like still going on in the early nineties. Sure. And, um, so I, so I, I was like tutored on film sets, homeschooled. And so it was in trailers and everything. So it's very much like I, I, it's very familiar to me, the film world. And that's the, perhaps the deepest way it just seeped in was like the world of the set is very familiar from childhood, but you know, uh, getting into college and stuff, I, I was not necessarily going to go into film at all. I, I certainly wasn't interested in acting specifically. If anything, right. I had grown up with a camera and I was starting to make like home video documentaries about my family kind of stuff. You know. <laughs> nice. All right. So like, uh, I was definitely heading in the documentary direction. Which, which so, is the, the majority of your career up to this point, right? Totally. I mean, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, I, I started to realize I was interested in, in getting into the film world, but it definitely was not, didn't feel informed by their path into the film world. It was very different. I was very aware from an early period in it, like in making my first documentary and stuff. Uh, they were, they've been so supportive and giving me great advice, but they didn't really have like the, the like documentary advice I necessarily needed, right? Because <laughs> right, they don't, yeah. just don't know about that world. So I, I sought out some, I sought out like other mentors and I had some great teachers and mentors along the way. I was lucky to find, be connected with, and this is how some of their connections d- did really help me for sure. 
my mom had done this movie, uh, Rachel Getting Married, mm-hmm. with Jonathan Demi, and and we were living around near this place, the Jacob Burns Film Center, and in, in, which is just north of New York City. I I started work there as like a, I was sweeping the theaters, and I started to do like, like a summer job in the movie theater, and then. Jonathan Demi was involved with the Jacob Burns Film Center and there was an educational program that I applied for and got into. And he became, he started to become kind of a mentor of me and knew my mom. Right. And then, so I think I, I, you know, I showed up on his radar because of that, but genuinely we had a great relationship. He EP'd both of my doc features and I started to work as a DP shooting his new doc right before he passed away. And I, I did the score for this short doc he did about Standing Rock and, um, and so that finding someone like that was was perhaps a result of who my parents are. It sort of was a more along the path that I was taking, which was like the documentary world. Now, I've innumerable help is I've I've been a head start I've been get given in this work by having them as parents because of the network. I mean, it's it's undeniable. Absolutely. You can take your own path, and you can and I I you know I'm proud of you know, making my own way and as a, as a freelancer and sort of doing it my own, my own way. At the same time, I've just been given a huge boost by, by just the ability to get in touch with someone if I, if I need to through their network. Absolutely. Um, that's hard. People, people are shut out of networks until they aren't. And I, I've never had that problem. People are shut out of networks until they aren't that uh, like that, that feels so simple, but it, no, it's absolutely true. It feels like a club that you're looking through the window into it when you're outside the network. Yes. Um, and so, I mean, one of the best things my dad ever did for me when I was coming out of grad school was he just set me up with informational interviews with everyone he knew and Amazing. said, yeah. just, you know, learn, learn from them. And the goal of your interviews should be uh, like more interviews, more meetings, like just yes. expand your network as far as possible. And so depending on what you want to go in, I always tell young people, it's like, look, meet with anyone who is willing to meet with you. Right. And <clears throat> some of us are, are blessed. I am, sounds like you are, to have parents with really great networks that you can tap into. And so I would never, ever make a claim uh, for like full bootstrapping what I do. Right. I'm, I'm very proud of what I do and I've, and I work really hard at it to kind of carve my own path. But man, like I, I didn't get there entirely on my own. I'm not, I'm not a self-made success story. No, no way. I, I, I wouldn't. Yeah, I agree with you completely. And, and that, that makes it more important for people like us to, meet with those young people who are coming behind us who, who absolutely didn't have because we we were we we're very lucky and I, w- I would not be here today had had i not gotten that help no and, and if someone comes to me and says hey can you uh w- would you be i have a friend of a friend or you know someone's son or daughter or whatever wants to meet with you i always say yes like i, yes. Li- I literally yeah. always say yes and then i try and introduce them to more people so yes good i mean that, that's all that that's all we can do really to, to pass an arm. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. Okay. So in terms of the overall vision for lapses, you're, you're kind of, uh, where, where are you in the festival circuit at this point? I would say we're, we're approaching the end. We, we, um, I have a, a release in the U S coming up in February. Oh, great. Yeah. Okay. And so North America, I believe it's actually all it's North America and it's being done by film movement and, um, there, you know, theatrical is not really physical theatrical doesn't seem to be possible quite yet. And so they're, they're doing the virtual theatrical. And, um, and then beyond that, we have, you know, we, we're starting to play more international festivals now and, and, but we don't have any sales yet lined up for, you know, around the world. And so I, I think the film will be widely available 
hopefully in spring 2021. Yeah, that that would be cool because I I think this is one that people deserve to see because like it's pertinent to what's going on culturally and societally and economically and politically, but it's also just fun, man. Like it's, it's a fun movie. Like it, it, and that's not to say it's like lighthearted necessarily, but when you go to a movie, you want to be entertained and it's a very entertaining movie. I, I hope it is. Yeah. I hope people find it entertaining as well as for, you know, uh, for the critiques that we've been talking about, I find it worthwhile, but it's meant to it's meant to be fun. Yeah. I mean, God forbid we we go to the movie and have a good time, right? I, <laughs> that's For sure. A, what what an absurdist notion, especially in this 2020 that has been endless. I know. So, well, I'll tell you what. Noah Hutton, um right now is the time on the show when we do plugs. Where can people find you, find out more about your work, find Lapsus? It's all yours. Plug away. Oh, I appreciate it. Well, I'm I'm on social media at Noah Hutton. And they can uh, find my website at noahhutton.com where I have all my work. Yeah, I mean, I, the Lapsus is, has its own accounts and everything, but they'll find it if they come to me. <laughs> okay, perfect. Um, well, I will link to that. I will also link to some of those Lapsus accounts uh, on the companion blog piece that will be on johnofalltrades.us. That's J-O-N of alltrades.us. Uh, or in the show notes, if you're listening on iTunes, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or any other of a billion podcatchers, I think I'm on all of them. Noah Hutton, man, what a pleasure, what a thrill. This uh, this was a great conversation, terrific movie, and I wish you nothing but continued success. Thank you so much, John. Great questions. It was really a pleasure. I, I appreciate you watching the film and having such a thoughtful response. And that'll do it for episode 271 of the John of All Trades podcast with Noah Hutton, writer and director of the movie Lapses. What a cool guy. What a great conversation. Thrilled I got to do this. I love Denver Film Festival. One of my favorite times of the year for the podcast. Go to johnofalltrades.us. Up on the tab, you'll see Denver Film Fest 2020. You'll see all my interviews from the festival from this year. That link right there. My sponsor is 4 Degrees. The number 4, D-E-G-R-E.us. Anything you're doing online, 4 Degrees can help you do it better. Building a website, online advertising, social media marketing, trying to reach audiences that you need to reach with your message, 4 Degrees can help you do that most optimally. The number 4, D-E-G-R-E dot E-S. The John of All Trades podcast is a production of Deft Communications. Check out Deft on the web, D-E-F-T-C-O-M dot U-S. That's my independent contracting gig. We talked about that on the show. And I can help you with training, content, engagement, podcasting. We're going great guns. The year has turned around a little bit. Hoping to keep that momentum going. We'll see what we can do. Stay up with me on social media. J-O-A-T pod is the handle. Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, Pinterest, and Instagram. Episode previews go up on Monday or sometimes Tuesday. Facebook only. New episodes drop on Wednesday. That's available on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your pods. I'm out of here for this week. Thank you for listening to the John of All Trades podcast. I hope you're staying safe, taking care of each other. Until I hear you again, say goodnight, Gracie. That's good, Johnny.